0: Well,
1: good evening everybody, and welcome to the Liberty GB radio show. I'm your host for tonight, Tim Burton, and tonight we have uh, panellists Paul Weston and Enza Ferreri from Liberty GB. Dr. Bill Warner, who is our guest tonight, um, holds a PhD in physics and mathematics from North Carolina State University. He's been a university professor, a businessman, and applied physicist, but he's probably best known to our listeners for the work that he's done in introducing Islam to a wider audience. Uh, He postulates that there are three independent views of Islam that are not reconcilable. The three views are believer-centric, apologist-centric, and kafir-centric. The believer-centric view is the view of a Muslim, Apologist-centric is based on the apologetic view of non-Muslims, and Kafir-centric is the view of the non-Muslim. A comprehensive knowledge of Islam must include all three. The views cannot be resolved, but each must stand alone. And a lot of uh, what um, Dr. Warner has written uh, in his essays and in his articles on his uh, website, the um, uh, politicalislam.com website, and the YouTube videos, which I'm sure many of our listeners will have seen, will, of course, reflect these views. So, Dr. Warner, I'll bring you into the studio. You are now live on Liberty GB Radio. Good, even- good evening to you, Bill.
2: Hello, Tim. How are you doing?
1: I was doing absolutely fine until I dropped my notes in a big heap on the floor just as the show was (laughs) starting. Thank you for asking. Um, Bill, thank you ever so much for for joining us on the the show this evening. Uh, We have, of course, uh, a a situation at the moment in the the Middle East and and the Far East with um, uh, the persecution of of Christians. And I understand that you're particularly interested in that. And if you'd like to give us a a little bit of... um, Background for our listeners on this, and you've got a a particular project which you'd like to talk about, which is uh, the Voice for the Voiceless. So, if I allow you to expand on that in your own words.
2: Okay. First off, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is called the Buckle on the Bible Belt. And the reason for that is we had some uh, people come from England, and they wanted to do a, a show on religiosity in Nashville, and they were stunned at how many churches there were. They said, it's like there's one on every corner. So I come from a town which prides itself on its religiosity. The decided moral contrast to see how many churches there are, and to see how little caring there is for the fact that their brothers and sisters are being murdered on a weekly basis, usually overseas. And so this this is a distinct contrast, if you will, and one that is uh, distressing to me. And I have uh, talked about uh, the death of Christians forever and ever. I've talked about it from a historical sense, a doctrinal sense, because what we see in history is that The murder of Christians, as we're finding, oh, I don't know, the the figure that sticks in my mind was, I think last week 62 Nigerian Christians were killed simply because they were Christian. Well, I know that fact, but you will not find that fact being talked about in almost any church in Nashville. So the real estate religiosity is predominant, but the caring religiosity for their brothers and sisters is almost absent so i i live in sort of a high contrast area if you will and it has become clear to me more and more first off i'm uh monomaniacal i'm 73 years old and so i don't have enough time to do a lot of things and i only do one thing and that is deal with islam yes. and i've dealt with islam as you pointed out by writing books you know i've published three different qurans i uh, on the, I publish on the Hadith, I write newsletters on the nature of Islam and why it does what it does, because killing Christians, we have to understand that Muhammad, the perfect Muslim, was a Christian killer, a Jew killer, and a pagan killer. So it all fits together. Theory, doctrine, and application or history all fit together. And that's what I've emphasized all this time. That is, I have spoken about Islam. And what I get here in America Is I've been called everything but kind, okay? And it gradually began to sink into me that the approach through knowledge and facts, and I'm a scientist, okay? So I'm rather fond of facts. I own lots and lots of books, I read all the time. But I find that the fact based approach, which in my personal bias I thought was an overwhelming approach, turns out to be not very effective. Uh, we find that uh, religious leaders, whether they're Jewish or Christian, just simply ignore the facts of the matter. I mean, they really just ignore it. And furthermore, they won't give you any space to talk about it. So when they have religious dialogues, the, for instance, Family of Abraham dialogues, they never invite the injured members of the family. That is, persecuted Christians are never invited to these dialogues. So I fell to thinking. As I've told you, this is a monomaniacal, and I suddenly realized that we needed to open up another front in dealing with Islam, and I'm going to call it, for purposes of this talk, the victim front. We need to start talking about the victims, and we need to start talking about the morality of our leaders in the fact that they won't discuss the victims. We in Tennessee here in Nashville, we have ministers who will go to a Family of Abraham event. There will be two or 300 there, and they're they're just oh so sympathetic because a Muslim talks about the fact that it targets somebody pointed at her hijab. And oh, it's true, America is just the most racist, dreadful, bigoted place in the world, and we're so sorry that you Muslims have to come here and put up with evil like Bill Warner. So, and I noticed something else, when they want to attack me, I never get my facts attacked. That is, they never say, Bill, that's not the proper application of that hadith. Or, Bill, that syrah doesn't apply. Know what they say, I've already told you. They call me bad moral names. I'm a bigot. So it seems to me that we need to open up a front on feelings and morality and victims. And take an entire new approach. And so I've prepared a campaign, which I'm rolling out slowly, which I call a voice for the voiceless. Because the sin and moral crime that I accuse the religious leaders here in Tennessee of being is that they are silent in the face of evil. They will not speak against evil. They accommodate evil. And they will not even give their dead brothers and sisters a tip of the hat. So I want to try use of shame. And uh, so that gives you a background of, of I'm trying to open up a moral victim front. And it's Goal is not to attack the Muslims. I don't want to. I don't even want to discuss them anymore. What I want to discuss is our own religious leaders, who seem to only be concerned about nickels and noses. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I was
1: going to say nickels and nickels and noses is a is a is a phrase that um, I've heard used before, and I think it's really very appropriate. (laughs) In this sort of context, um, before you elaborate a little a little further, uh, Bill, um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to la- ask our our uh, guests in turn um, to briefly a- ask you uh, a question um, about what you've said up to now. Um, may I do that? I'd like to ask Surely. Paul. For- Paul, first
0: of all, uh, Paul, would you like to go ahead?
2: And by the way, sure. let me see, Paul. I'm a big fan of yours.
0: Ah, well, the feeling is absolutely neutral, Bill. Thanks a lot for coming on here tonight. Uh, now, now, listen, I don't really have a question for Bill particularly because, um, well, I do, but I'll come to that later. But I just want to to to, to, to state my complete agreement with uh, with what you've just been saying, which is which is we should not be attacking Muslims and we should not be attacking Islam. You know, we can point out the problems within. The, uh, a religion that sort of overlaps with a political ideology, but the actual attacking, I think we should reserve for the, uh, for the, for the, in your case the American, and in our case the British politicians and the and the churchmen and the uh, leaders and the educationers, all of these people who are bending over backwards who either appease Islam because they're frightened of them or because they view them as useful pawns in their in their uh, ongoing revolutionary battle against western civilization and i think uh, i think these are the people as you quite rightly say we should be attacking all the time all the time without fail and that really is uh, is is uh, the only point i would like to make at the moment i'm much more interested in listening to bill uh, than myself tonight so i will I will hand myself back over again. (laughs)
1: Okay. Um, Bill, can I introduce uh, Enza Ferreri to you and um, give give Enza an opportunity to to say hello and ask an initial question of her own? Uh, Enza, go ahead.
3: I I just wanted to tell you, uh, the um, team, that the university I took a degree in philosophy from is not Pizza, it's Pizza. (laughs) <laughs> because it sounded, it sounded a little bit funny you said it.
1: <laughs> I do apologise. Uh, like, my my <laughs> well, Italian is not
3: just that good. A funny, funny remark. <laughs> now, there, is, there is one fundamental question I'd like to ask, but I don't know if it's the, the case of asking it now or at the end of the programme. But anyway, to me, the most important thing is because I've been... I mean, I know um, a lot about the persecution of Christians uh, in the world. And... Um, what is the the, the the stumbling block is what can can we do practically for them? I think it's extremely difficult. I mean, what you're doing, Bill, is very good because it's something practical. Because so far we've mainly written about it. Uh, Raymond Ibrahim has written that awesome book, uh, "Crucified Again," to which I contributed a, a bit about about Europe and. Um, there is, of course there is persecution in of Christians in the west as well although in a much less a much less um lesser degree and for instance you know the apostates from islam, from islam the muslims muslim immigrants in the west who convert to Christianity can be also at also risk of their their lives so uh, with the spread of islam the spread of persecution of Christians has also increased, uh, the, the, and uh, and it's been, we know as we know it's increasing all the time. I mean, the, the, the different, for instance, Le Figaro, the French newspaper Le Figaro, on Christmas Day, it always publishes a um, a, a map of the persecution of Christians in the world. And compared this year, in 2003, I mean, last year, it compared it to the 2010 one. And there was it, it, the areas in red, which are the worst, or, or or even in yellow, have become bigger and bigger. So we know that not only there is a huge peace and persecution in the world, but it's also um, increasing all the time. And I suppose that, that what to do will be the most difficult question. So at the moment... I'm just saying that you've you started something concrete and practical and it seems you know, a very good thing to do.
2: What I want to do, I cannot help Nigerian Christians. What I can do is to bring their case, if you will, their moral case to Christian leaders here in Nashville. And what I want to do is, I think somewhat in military terms, and so I think in terms of, for instance, tactical raids, all right? I've tried writing letters and that kind of thing, and I now want to try another kind of, I'm going to use the term war, which is, a, in my opinion, almost a neutral word. I want to try a different kind of war. I don't, instead of writing articles and uh, uh, doing video blogs and that kind of thing, I, all of those things that I've done up to this point have one thing in common, I am not in the same room with both my allies or my enemies. Now, by the way, let me inter- when I say enemies here, uh, some people say, well, that's slightly strong in language. But I think that it is a war, and that one of the first things you need to do is to understand your enemy. And we have, if you will, two enemies. The far enemy is Islam, and the near enemy, are what I call the apologist. I've, I've, that's a term I use. And when used without any other adjectives, I'm talking about people who are apologists for Islam. So what I want to do is, is I want to go to the watering holes of the apologist. And the watering holes for the apologist, by the way, if you're a predator hunter, what you want to do is, is find where your game comes for water and just wait. You'll get your chance. And in Nashville, we have plenty of watering holes. they are Family of Abraham meetings. There's two next week. There are apologists who come to the universities. So what I want to do is to develop a program. Now, by the way, these are all plans, but they are, as we speak, beginning to be put in place. I've only had this idea recently. So what we want to do is to do something like go to a Family of Abraham event. Not for the purpose. We used to go to these events, and we were, thought we would ask a really intelligent question that would show the deceit and the lies in the speaker. But it turns out as soon as they ask, they determine that we were going to ask hard questions. They don't let you ask questions anymore. You have to write your questions down on a piece of paper, and if they choose to do so, they will ask the question. So what I want to do is to develop also something that's very simple. If we're going to do this, it has to be simple, because not many people are going to sit down and exercise sheer scholarship to master, say, the Hadith. So we need something that's simple to do. So what I want to do is to this. I want, I've got a brochure copy, which develops the idea of a, uh, a moral crime. And, it, and I've adopted also an entirely leftist language. For instance, instead of talking so much about suffering Christians, I call it the greatest human rights, cr- human rights crime in the world. So there we are adopting already a sort of United Nations kind of speech. And what I refer to instead of Christians so much is religious minorities, okay? Because here's the deal. All of the apologists read and speak progressive leftist language. That's the way they think. So I want to adopt a language in my brochures which will seem natural to them. The other thing I want to do is to point out to them in this brochure that as moral leaders, they are silent in the face of evil, I'm very clear that what is being done in the persecution of religious minorities, these are victims. And victims, of course, really trip the progressive trigger. That is a language they naturally understand. When they come together for these religious dialogues, they are all about victims, except the Muslims are the poor victims. I mean, that they're having to exist in such a cruel, racist, Islamophobic, bigot world as America. So we want to give them. Bigger victims, if you will. If they want victims, we'll give it to them. But the only, I make no mention of Islam at all, jihad, or Muslims, but instead the attack point, if you will, is the moral leadership, the silence of the religious community. And of course, we quote Bonhoeffer silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act, it's to act. And what we do is, is we adopt a tone of begging these leaders to take care of the voiceless, that they should speak for the voiceless, because these voiceless never have a they, – they don't get to come to their meetings. So that's the thrust. But now how to get them to read the brochure, and then I'll get to this point, then I'll be quiet. We, if we want to go to their meetings, and three or four minutes before the meeting starts – I want to have one of us for about every 10 of them, so we need 20 or 30 people. We come into the room. We sit at the end of rows. At a predetermined time, the floor captain says, this is a protest demonstration. Stands up and puts over their face a a strip of cloth that has voiceless written on it, so it looks like a gag. At the same time, everyone else stands up in the room, puts on their voiceless gag, and proceeds in a very methodical way they have been trained to do packets of these brochures at the end of every row, and then we walk out of the room because we are voiceless. The purpose of this drama, if you will, is to force, and the, everyone who gets a brochure will read it under these circumstances because they've never seen anything like this. It is, if you will, socially shocking. So what I want to do is, is to put together a cadre, you'll notice a military term, a cadre, and I can do this, of people in Nashville who are everywhere that Muslims show up to speak, whether it's at a university or anywhere else, that we hand out pretty much the same brochures so that the Muslims finally get to know that in Nashville, Tennessee, if you're going to show up, these people are going to call out they want a voice for the voiceless. So that's the, that is one-third of my plan.
1: That's a really interesting, Bill. It's, it's something that sounds like it might work over here as well, not just in the United States. And what I'd like to do is to um, get comments from each of our panelists in turn, and I'll start with Paul and then move on to Enza. Um, Paul, can I have your comments on what Bill
0: has said so far, please? Ah I love it. I uh, I love all the stuff uh, Bill comes out with. You know this whole idea of turning it round on them is just uh, it's just uh, music to my ears. And you, you know this whole stuff about uh, about the you know Muslims being the being the victims. Of course Muslims are always the victims in western societies because they're a minority. And in the leftist you know the liberal left world view all minorities are oppressed. Now this is this is Uh, economic marxism from the communist days rewritten as cultural marxism today which is designed to do away with the, the the foundations that built modern western christian liberal democracies so every single person has to be utilized to batter them down whether it's Muslim minorities or female minorities or or or, or, or homosexual minorities it 's always a group that has to be set against us and because we 're this horrible oppressive majority, the idea uh, uh, bill 's idea that you turn this around and you and you make us into the victims and you implore people. To in in the language they understand, you know the, uh, the the progressive liberal speak they understand. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And the only uh, the only question I have uh, for Bill after that uh, after that is, are you doing this in in proper Christian churches? You have to do this in the, in Nashville because I've been to Nashville. As you know, I I met Bill in Nashville a couple of years ago. And I was absolutely staggered as to, the, as to the, uh, the, the religion and the patriotism that I encountered there compared to poor old Britain, where a lot of that has just disappeared now. So my question to Bill would uh, very quickly be, these are, these are traditional churches that you're going to have to do this in?
2: I want to do it in every venue where Muslims show up, Okay. I want to these brochures I, I want the brochure brigade, which is what I call it. Again, the military analogy, uh, because to me this is war. By the way, this is not a competition. This is war, uh, which I think is something that some people are a little bit afraid to talk about. Will, whoa, 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 whoa. So anyway, uh, I want to show up with these brochures every time Muslims show up in a public event. So if it's at a church, yes, it's at a church. If it's at a university. Uh, or where, wherever they meet, I want to establish in the Muslim mind by the end of the year 2014 that those people are going to show up and that they just know to expect it. I mean, it will be a delight to me when they try to keep us out of a public event. In America, that presents a slight problem. If you advertise it in the public, then you have to let the public come in. So I, I, want, to, I want to crank up the moral pressure on what should be our moral leaders, in particular religious leaders. I'm, this is an opinion, but I think that the, in America, we find that we have moral rot at the, in all of our areas, which you've mentioned, the educa- you know, educators, uh, the, the pulpits. Uh, in America, even the military is rotting at the top. Mm. So I want to, every case we can, put the moral pressure on. I want, it to, I want to become a known irritant. If there is suffering, I just want to push suffering in their face until finally they have to ask the moral question, what is the cause of this suffering? But I'll let them ask their own moral question. But I do want to be very clear that they are immoral and that they are evil. And these are the kind of words I want to be using. I want to use moral terms. I want to shame them. Will you not reach out and touch your brothers and sisters? Will you not stand up for them? I said on a radio show, uh, I was on. I said, I can construct both a moral argument and a scriptural argument for Christians caring for their brothers and sisters. And the guy who was the show I was on was is a Christian minister. I said, Is that the case? He said, Oh, very definitely. I said, Now then, I ask you this question: What moral argument or religious or scriptural argument can you give for refusing? to embrace your bloodied brothers and sisters. Can you construct such an argument? And he said, well, no, I can't really. So this is the kind of work I want to do. Instead of arguing whether there is a sunnah or not, I just want to present all moral arguments. You know, we're talking about dead people here, not hijabs being stared at in the Target store.
0: I think that's a very, I think that's a, no, I'm just going to basically sit here and agree with everything Bill Warner says tonight. But but uh, when you argue with the left, you know, take, for example, a situation that you live in a small town, uh, not Nashville, but, uh, but a small town in, uh, in Britain, and you have out of, uh, say, 5,000 people, you have a Muslim family, one Muslim family. Now, if you started... Uh, suggesting that this is absolutely wrong and dreadful and this Muslim family should be thrown out and they're corrupting our culture and our country. You can expect to be attacked by the left as a bigoted racist. But when you get to the point that uh, now 25% of the town is Muslim, that 25% of the town is uh, is uh, effectively a no-go area. There are all sorts of horrific incidents being carried out in that section of the town. You can then turn the argument onto the left and say, look, in the future, these people, based on their demographics, are going to be a majority. Now, you tell me why you think it is moral, ethical and just that we should stand aside as uh, as an advanced uh, liberal democracy to be replaced by these people who are absolutely appalling in their attitude towards non-Muslims, in their attitude towards homosexuals and Jews, uh, and, and of course women, explain to me why I am morally wrong when I think you're morally wrong. And that, of course, is the time that you can get them. You can always get them on the moral and ethical argument now because the, the numbers are, are so great that it is no longer a question of singling out one family. It is now a question of looking at this tsunami, this, this demographic tsunami heading our way with all of the uh, attendant unpleasantness that goes with it. So getting them on the moral and ethical angle is absolutely right. And yet again, I'm, uh, I'm simply basically parroting Bill, but, uh, but, but, but it is. It's just everybody needs to learn from this. When you argue with the left or you know, not even the hard left, that the that the liberals as well. This is how. <coughs> excuse me. This is how you have to do it.
1: Mm. I, I I would certainly ag- agree with with Paul there. And I was just thinking if we could if we could have this narrative accepted everywhere, not not just in the West, because it's everywhere that, that Muslims persecute. Um, non-Muslims everywhere in the world. I was just thinking of the example of the uh, Buddhists in in Burma where the uh, Rohingya Muslims have um, made life so miserable for the Buddhists that Buddhist monks now arming themselves and fighting back. And of course the Rohingya Muslims uh, are crying foul um, because, mm-hmm. you know, you've really, you've really got to upset a Buddhist for him to go and pick up a gun and to start acting in that manner, but when it's a question of survival of course, um, you have to understand it, uh, well, you, you do, I mean it's understandable is, is what I meant, sorry um, but yeah, of course the Rohingya Muslims are now calling on all their leftist um, allies everywhere around the world to say, oh, please help us, we're a poor persecuted minority and these nasty Buddhists are attacking us, but if we could get this narrative that you're proposing a voice for the voiceless to be accepted as an as a norm, then I think people would start seeing that they have been duped by the Muslim narrative up to now, and I think that would would really make a huge huge difference
3: if I understood well um, I think that bill was saying that we should say that these people are immoral, but i don 't know if he was referring to um the the, the, the Western leaders, religious and political leaders, who don't... Deter, That's, uh, that
0: is exactly who is referring to. But not,
3: but not, but not the Muslims who commit these atrocities. Is that what you were saying, Bill?
2: Yes. I only want to engage our leadership, whether they're religious, media, mm-hmm. military, police. I just want to engage our leadership. Because here's the thing. When we engage our own, There is even the most hard-dyed leftist, in some part of him, has some respect for the golden rule and has some respect for logical thought. He may try to avoid it as much as possible, but if you can point out contradictions, you can actually make some gains. What I'm saying is, is that I want to only present arguments to members of my civilization My civilization is based upon the moral keystone of the golden rule and the logical keystone of rational thought. So those are the people I want to engage. And besides that, I also, from a military standpoint, want to engage them because if we can remove the moral support of these people, then Islam will fail. Because when we look carefully and see what happens... It is the apologists who always carry out the devastating work that Islam produces in a society. Because it is, apolog- it is, say, a Methodist who brings in the idea that whatever we have to do to help these poor Muslim people. It is the apologists who are advancing Islam. If we can retard the apologist, Islam starts to fail. That is, I want to have flanking attacks on Islam. A brilliant example of this is in Israel how the Muslims are slowly attacking Israel, not so much with direct attacks, but by taking away all of her allies. So I want to attack Islam's allies in America, and I want to use a moral argument to do it, and I want it to be in the same room. We have succeeded on the Internet and in the realm of ideas. It is time for us to get out of that and to be in the same room with the apologists who are advancing Islam. I have a three-point front in A Voice for the Voiceless. I've told you about one of them, which I sort of call the Brochure Brigade, okay? I have two more stages to it. I am a child of the 60s. As a matter of fact, I could be described as a hippie apostate, okay? Uh, I, was, I, I, I tell my audience sometimes, my audiences in America are almost always some version of conservative And I tell them, I said, I am not who you think I am. You think that I am a conservative. But I said, I have had all kinds of politics in my life. I said, I was involved in civil rights, for instance. I was a community organizer. I've helped to organize demonstrations, all right? And I said, I learned something from being a hippie, and I want to pass this on to you, and that is we need to start having public demonstrations in the faces of our enemies, Public demonstrations were awesomely powerful during the 60s and civil rights, and the reason was simple. they, The demonstrators held the high moral ground, and they could thrust this in a public way into the faces of their enemies. Now, remember, we have to create a meeting place between us and the apologists for Islam, because we will never be invited. Okay? We will never... No, I don't have people come to me in politics or well I do have actually people come to me in politics. So I'll skip that. But we need to be able to create a positive force for ourselves on our own terms. We have to create we have to push ourselves into the apologist space. So to do that, we and we need to make a public statement. And so I want to use demonstrations and I want these demonstrations to be very uh, video-able, if you, uh, video 're video-friendly. I want the demonstration to be done in silence. I want people to be wearing these gags that say voiceless on it. And I want it to be done in places of power. So that is one way we could deal with Family of Abraham events, for instance, is that we open the event by pushing brochures into their hands, and then when the people come out of the meeting – We want to have a demonstration there where people are holding up signs, shaming them for neglecting the true victims in this world. But the real muscle comes from this idea. We need to be able to have a true offense so that we can pick specific targets and create pain, moral pain. Let me give you an example. In this town, the largest newspaper is the Tennessean. It's the largest newspaper in the state. They consistently write stories about the poor Muslims who have to live in such a racist, bigoted America who are horrible people uh, like myself. I I have been uh, crucified as a strong term, but I have been given hatchet jobs on the front page of the Tennessee in four different times. They've spoken to me rather often. Uh, a friend of mine who works in public relations says, Bill, I've never seen a man who could get so much coverage in my life. And she says, you get it on the front page. How do you do that? They write columns about you. I says, since you've been in PR, my question to you is, how do I turn it off? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to be able to turn it on when I need to. So I want to be able to go to the Tennessean with what I call the committee. And the committee would say to the Tennessean, you know, In all your years, you only write about the poor Muslims. You never write about dead Christians. We want you to start about writing about dead Christians, and we're going to be coming back in four weeks. So we come back in four weeks. They're not going to have done anything. They're not going to change policy because three people showed up. So then we say, okay, we're going to give you four more weeks, but now we're not asking. We're making a demand. Because in exactly four weeks, if we don't see a policy change in this newspaper, I'm going to turn up a few hundred people on the sidewalks outside your newspaper. We will issue a press release, and we're going to hold a demonstration, and we're going to say you are evil, that you're morally culpable in the death of Christians and Buddhists and Hindus around the world. See how you like that on the 6 o'clock news. So this technique can be used to project power and cause moral suffering in our uh, in our the apologists for islam.
0: I think it's fantastic that Bill is a, uh, an ex-hippie who is uh, who has now come around a certain corner and uh, and seen <laughs> and seen some things for what they are. But you know when you look at the power that the that the 60s and 70s uh, student movement had it was phenomenal and it really did change society. And I there were think moral it changed. Arguments. Yep, yep, absolutely, and if you can get the people behind you, and ideally if you can get the young people behind you, and I don't think I don't think that we oldies are going to actually do it on the streets. We can we can try to get the younger generations out on the streets, but the problem we have with the young, because these are the people who are who are historically the ones who go out and cause. Uh, uh, change and revolution which is exactly what we need but the trouble is and and it shouldn't be a problem this only goes to show the power of the of the propaganda that's endemic across the western world now but young people are very pro-homosexual they're very pro-equality they're very pro-feminism they're very pro-equal rights and here they are up against this most intransigent, monocultural, gay-hating, women-hating uh, uh, organization. So they should be thousands, hundreds of thousands of them on the street already. Why aren't they there? And what on earth can we do to, to, to overturn in decades of propaganda to make them see the reality of the situation? What, how do we do it?
2: Well, I want an opportunity to do it. I'll tell you that. I want to get in the same room with them. In talking about what I want to do, I am spinning castles in the air. That is, these are all plans that I'm talking to you about. However, I do have a foundation under me, and I do have allies in this city, and we have enough that we can uh, uh, certainly begin to pull some of these things off. But like I say, this <clears throat> my plan, a voice for the voiceless, comes after years of pushing forward fact-based arguments based on logic and knowledge. And it's just that it has... We've made good inroads with that. But if we continue to do what we've been doing, we'll penetrate another 10% of society over the next 10 years, and that's not nearly fast enough. In America, what I see happening is... Is that the advanced civil rights people, such as myself and yourself and Enza, uh, are we, we? We've got to ch- we have we have to open up new fronts because we it, what we're doing is too slow. I I tell I have already started putting together a series of videos on this voice for the voiceless, and I said I have a criteria for it, and that is that a fourteen-year-old would be able to understand and execute everything we need to do so i want something that's simple uh... that was one of that's one of the nice things about a demonstration is that if you show up you win and that's the thing that i would like to to start telling people here we need to develop a technique so that when we show up we win but when we show up it's got to be easy for instance I will show up and debate with anybody on the issue of Islam, but that is not a good basis for a political movement. That's kind of like I'm some black belt or something. We need something to do that anybody can do. And I, and I think that's part of my structure of trying to create a voice for the voiceless. Because a 14-year-old can understand dead bodies. A 14-year-old can understand people who've been murdered, raped, kidnapped, tortured. They, they can understand that. They don't need to know the hadith and the sirah. So we want to I want to put together a program that is based on simplicity and moral arguments because both the Vietnam War and civil rights were done on the basis of moral arguments. And look at our hand. We have all the moral cards, okay? So we we have something we just need to use it. And it needs to be and it needs to be done in addition to the thought process. If we can ever get anybody to move onto the grounds of logic, we win. I wrote a book called Factual Persuasion, and it comes from the fact that I conducted a series of arguments and debates with progressives and leftists because my wife on 9-11 was a member of the film business and had worked in the music business before that. So almost all of the people we knew were liberals, Obama voters, Democrats. And yet over a period of time, I persuaded each and every one that they may still vote for Obama, but they're not going to vote for Muhammad. But that is not a practical plan, because I had mastered Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and Sharia. Well, that means I'm a black belt. Well, we can't get 14-year-olds to be black belts in knowledge. Besides that, you can't tweet everything you need to know, so they're not going to know it. So anyway, we need things that are done that are simple, based on right and wrong. And we need to introduce shaming for those who do not do the right thing. And I think in particular in the religious world, This can work. Another aspect of a voice for the voiceless here in Nashville is this. We have many members of the immigrant persecuted church. We have Coptic Christians. We have Sudanese. We have Ethiopian. We have uh, uh, Nigerian. We have uh, Iraq. So we have enough of the the, uh, voiceless here. And the other thing I want to do in this voice for the voiceless campaign is to start a campaign to bring the persecuted church into the local church. That is, I want to convince, and the Coptic Christians are the only ones I've talked about this, but they're agreeable. I tell them, you need to put together a dog and pony show. I don't know if that translates for Enza or not. Uh, We need to put together an event so that we can bring you into churches and so that you can tell your story. So I want to bring about a fusion in Nashville between the persecuted church remnants and the established church, because I think if we can start doing that, once people hear these stories, and also when they meet these people, these people, the ones that I have met who are uh, from overseas, who are Nigerian and whatnot, and who are Christians, are wonderful people. They have, as a matter of fact, their religiosity in a strange way exceeds that of the natives so once they can see how wonderful and beautiful these people are as their character and their nature i think that we can get more people who are willing to say people like this should not be harmed and as a result the minister who has these people come to his church will not attend the next family of abraham dialogue so that's another aspect i want to do in this voice of the voiceless is to bring those who, count, who have not been heard into churches so that people can hear their voice. So, as you can tell, I have big plans. <laughs> yeah. I figure you get big results only from big plans. Also, the idea is this. <clears throat> Succeed or fail. Sometimes we get ideas and we realize if we do not do them, we will regret it on our deathbed. And I've structured my entire life so that when, <clears throat> when I lay down to die, I don't have regrets about, oh, I wish I had done this. So this falls under the heading of, once I've had this idea, I no longer have a choice on whether to execute it or not. I can't live with myself if I do not. So there's a lot of problems, but that's okay. I'm going to push ahead.
1: Um, Bill, I just want to say we're coming down to the last five minutes or so of the, of the show. Um, I think our listeners have really enjoyed it immensely. The, the chat room has been buzzing here while you've been talking, and uh, we'd certainly like you um, to come back again at some, uh, some point in the future and elaborate a little bit more about your project and the ideas that you have. Um, okay. Would you be agree-
2: agreeable to doing that uh, for well, some time in the future? Let, let, let me introduce you to my marketing plan. My marketing plan has two steps. I never solicit business. I never refuse a call. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, that's, that's great. Would you like to give us um, a few closing thoughts, please?
2: Well, what I've described for you is works with groups, okay? But I would also tell you this. If as an individual, let's say that you're just, let's say you're a Christian. Could you not work this on a smaller individual plan? That is, to talk to your own minister about where is our moral voice on this idea of suffering brothers and sisters. That is, although I've just done this in terms of groups, there as individuals we can do things. If, for instance, here's an example. We're bringing into Nashville a, a Pakistani Christian who had acid thrown in her face. So we're bringing one person, so we're not able to bring together all the persecuted church, but we are bringing in one person, and she's going to speak at one church. So what I'm saying here is, and she's going to be on a radio show, so even before we get to the power of mass, it is possible to take this idea, to stand up for those who are victims and martyrs, that we stand up for them. Even as individuals, we can do one thing or another, and we don't have to wait until the fact that we can get say 200 people, because as individuals we can press the moral arguments, that like I can say, and switch from factual arguments to moral arguments, ethical arguments, and basically just do the right thing. Come on. So everything that I've said here, uh, and on the I notice on the uh, intro to the show, the a voice for the voiceless website is there. You can see the first copy of the brochure. And by the way, that website is not at all developed. I just went out and uh, bought the name, and it's just the brochures on it to park it. But nevertheless, there are things that we can do as individuals to press moral arguments. And uh, that, I guess that, that would be what I would conclude. If you don't have a group, do it by yourself.
1: I hope very much to be able to speak to you again soon, Bill. And, uh, Thank you so much for what
2: you're doing. Once more Thank you, and.
3: Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye.